Uh, but I wanted to just pray before we start our time. Um, and God indeed is sovereign, so let's pray. Uh, Lord, Father, God, we thank you uh, for this opportunity. Um, Father, indeed, in my heart, you know. Uh, you, you peer into my heart. You know uh, any fears, any nervousness that occurs in there. And uh, Father, so I pray, even though my mouth hesitates, you speak powerfully. Though my words are, fu- are, are fallible, your word does not return void. Though my heart falters, you are steadfast. And so, Father, I pray that you uh, would speak the words to your people. And God, indeed, that we would be blessed. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Um, and so the topic of today is doubt. In the small introduction, um, in an interview, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, that's the Church of England, Justin Welby, uh, made headlines when he confessed that at times in his life, he questioned if God really exists. The reaction was swift and pointed. The International Business Times called it the doubt of the century. Another journalist wrote excitedly, atheism is on the rise, and even those at the top of the church seem to ha- be having their doubts. Another uh, the, a Muslim scholar, a famous Muslim scholar, went straight to Twitter, and he tweeted, I cannot, I cannot believe this. And another news columnist tweeted in all caps, victory. Even within the Christian circles, the reactions to Welby were mixed. One blogger wrote, Welby doubts? Well, I doubt Welby. And another added, he said, I I must be naive to think that belief in God might be at least a bare minimum requirement for anyone thinking of applying to the job of the leader of the Church of England. But others also were sympathetic, as one colonist summed up uh, their thoughts. He said, Welby doubts, Welby's doubts only make him human. And so the topic I wanted to broach for today, and in the line of a, a kind of our equipping hour of counseling and discipling, is really the topic of doubt. Uh, and a brief roadmap I want to answer for today is just four simple questions, four questions. The first one is, what is doubt? How do we define doubt? Uh, secondly, where does doubt come from? Uh, then, how should we think about it? And finally, how do we address it? So what is doubt? Where does it come from? How do we think about it? And how do we address it? And I think really doubt doesn't really need that much of an introduction, right? We are all kind of familiar with doubt. In life, we experience doubt in many different ways. I mean, uh, we doubt the telemarketer who calls. We doubt uh, princes of Nigeria who email us. I don't know why they would email. <laughs> I think they have a courier at least, right? But uh, we doubt, you know, we doubt decisions in our life. We say, did I choose the right job? Did I, did I make the right decision with my career? Uh, did I, you know, you look over in bed, you think, did I marry the right person? Um, sometimes we say, you know, should I really have eaten that last Twinkie? I mean, we doubt, we doubt, we're very, very familiar with doubt, right? But, uh, and so, what is, what is doubt? Uh, doubt by definition, uh, and I think you can see in your, your handouts, is a, a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction uh, in the Bible, the word commonly translated doubt is actually from a Greek word diakrino, and that's actually a pretty neat word picture. Uh, dia is actually the word through, and credo, or from krites, is the word to separate. And so the idea of doubt is, is this word picture of to be separated through in the mind, right? You have these, these thoughts pointing 
in, in just w whichever direction. And so the idea of doubt is to, ha is to capture this uncertainty in your mind, to be lost, to not know which way to think. And today, obviously, I, I want to talk specifically about Christian doubt, not just any kind of doubt, not just doubt in the world, but Christian doubt. And I think many of you are, are familiar with doubt. Uh, in, in, in the church, there actually are a few kinds of doubt, and I want to clarify because I'm going to specify one, I mean, speak on one particular kind of doubt. Um, but usually we talk, when we talk about doubt in the church, there are several, uh, there are, I think, four kinds of doubt that I uh, want to speak about. And so uh, the first one is doubt of salvation. You know, often we ask the question, uh, am, I, am I saved? Am I truly saved? Do, does my life reflect salvation, right? The fruits of salvation. Um, there's also doubt of favorable outcomes. Sometimes we doubt, we, we worry, we, we doubt, right? We doubt um, what's going to happen in life. Is this really going to come through for me? Is God going to come through? Uh, the third one is doubt of God's goodness. Actually, we also call this God's governance, doubting of God's governance. Is God really a good God? Is he really good? Does he really know what he's doing? Is he really sovereign? Does he really control this, world, this, this earth? And then finally, um, the fourth doubt is the doubt of belief, or what they call epistemological doubt. Um, and I think where, whereas the first Three doubts we talk about usually refer to doubts within the Christian framework, right? We say, you know, given that God exists, given Christ, uh, we have these doubts of salvation, we have these doubts that God's actually really good. But the, the fourth kind of doubt is the doubt of belief. And these, this kind of doubt questions the framework, the foundation of Christian belief itself, right? Does questions like, is the Bible true? Do, did the miracles of the past really, did they really happen? Does God really exist? Um, and what, uh, I want to focus on the latter uh, two or three, right? And I think many of the same concepts, but I think still many of the same concepts apply uh, to all four. And I think when it comes to doubt about God, it can be frightening. I'm sure this was true for Reverend Justin Welby. I'm sure this is true for some of you. Doubt strikes, at, after all, doubt strikes at the very core of what it means to be Christian. After all, what, how would you define Christianity? As, one, as, as, as just one who believes or has certainty in Christ and God. And I think perhaps in the Christian world, we feel like there really is no room for doubting, right? And that's why we're afraid. It is those who have faith who are extolled, not those who doubt, right? And I think in the Bible, you have, we have um, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, but there's no Hebrews 11b, hall of doubt, right? People, I think, uh, name their daughters. People think, think, oh, should I name my daughter Faith? But no one says, uh, wow, wow, I want to name my, maybe I should name my daughter Doubt. <laughs> I mean, that would be strange, but... Um, we say, man, he's a faithful brother, but who encourages the doubting brother? Doubt, we know, can bring shame. Doubt can bring fear. And doubt can produce even the greatest internal turmoil and insecurity in a Christian life. Uh, the apologist uh, Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Faith, wrote, for many Christians, 
merely even having doubts of any kind can be scary. They wonder, and maybe this resonates with you, they wonder if doubting disqualifies them from being a Christian. They wonder if it's even permissible to express uncertainty about God, Jesus, or the Bible. They wonder if they are the Waldo in a sea full of normal Christians, that they are the only one that struggles. They are afraid of confessing and then being disregarded, rebuked harshly, or misunderstood. Do you need to go to a seekers class? Maybe you should go to the children's reading of our church. No, right? It's hard for sometimes a doubter to be in the Christian world. And I think ultimately, a person never really likes to be alone or left alone in the Christian world, to be the straggler, the one chasing everyone else behind. You know, everyone's getting on the gospel train. Choo-choo, let's go share the gospel to the world. And the guy, the doubter, is standing in the back saying, is that really a train? Is that really, mm, is that really where it's going? And it could be a lonely place. Uh, even actually while I was preparing the sermon, I actually, uh, you know, actually I went onto YouTube um, to see what, what was out there on doubt. And the, one of the first sermons that came up was titled, Doubt, the Sin God Hates. Gives you the warm and fuzzies, doesn't it? I could have come up here and shown on this. Who's next to confess? And all this to say is that doubt can be complicated. Doubt can be hard. So where does it come from? Where does doubt come from? And I wanted to address two main sources of doubt. And I think doubt actually can come from many different places. But uh, I think mainly uh, we, we, when we interact with doubt, it is the intellectual and the experiential, right? Okay? The intellectual, the experiential. So first, what is the intellectual? And that's pretty obvious. Uh, it's when a person has difficulty reconciling in their mind with their reason about what God says. Uh, and there actually is a branch of philosophy that's called this, called uh, epistemology. And it's the study of how one comes to justified belief in something, or uh, as rather than an opinion, right? How do I come from opinion to actually justified belief? How do I come to the place where I believe something? And, um, you know, I think the question is sometimes we ask this, you know, how do, how, I may mean, ask you, how do you come to believe something in life? How do you believe something like uh, when do you choose to believe the telemarketer or a story or what somebody tells you and I think just things that come off my head you and I, I research Yelp I look at how many stars there are the more stars the better right um, I look at the evidence really what do you think is actually it just has to be reasonable to you it has to coincide with reason and sometimes I think Christianity seems to fly in the face of reason, right? Of your everyday life. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say that, right? It's not every day, day that you hear of the dead coming back to life. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen that only on Walking Dead. Um, but it's not, right? It's, it's, it's hard to believe. I think sometimes it's something you have not seen, that you have not witnessed. And I think it's kind of, what is the, uh, how is it commonly said? They say, I'll see it when I I'll believe it when I see it. Wait, how's it going? I'll believe it when I see it, right? I'll believe it when I see it. And that's, that's, that's kind of the, the way we naturally come to reason. Uh, and I think, you know, we can actually turn to Scripture to find a good example of uh, intellectual doubt. Uh, so if you want to turn with me to Genesis 17, Genesis 17, verse 15, we have a good example of intellectual doubt. Uh, here we are within, uh, where God 
is actually speaking to Abraham, and he says to him, uh, regarding, uh, regarding to his promises, he says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be, be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Uh, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And then Abraham, we see here, right, fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? That was intellectual doubt. Uh, you know, I don't think uh, we kind of are familiar with these stories, and sometimes we discount the intellectual doubt that faced Abraham here. But, you know, I think, I think if my grandma came to me and said to me, Ben, I'm pregnant. I think I'd be like, uh, what? <laughs> Is this even possible? And with whom? Anyways, uh, I, I think sometimes, actually, our inability to, to reconcile what we see intellectually and with our everyday life can spring forth doubt. Uh, secondly, okay, experiential, right? There's experiential doubt. And I think this is captured by another psalm, um, by psalm, another scripture. Uh, and if you want to turn me there, Psalm 88. Um, so as we turn there, Psalm 88, verse 13, uh, this is a psalm written by uh, Heman the Ezraite, and not to be confused with Heman of Grace Gulf, but Heman, <laughs> an Ezraite, maybe of Ezra. Um, in Psalm 88, Heman writes, uh, but I... O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, Heman, we see in the, early in the morning, he seeks the Lord. Presumably, he is in need. He is in distress. He needs help. And he cries out to God. But in his experience, it seems like God is silent, and to him, God's silence speaks louder than any words. Loss of a child, death of a family member, long-term suffering. I know some of us have been there. It often begs the beholder to ask the question, God, are you there? Why do you not answer me? Do you not love me, Lord? And this was it, I think, for Justin Welby, the reverend we said in the beginning. He was a man familiar with anguish and grief. He had lost his firstborn child, a seven-month-old baby girl, in a car accident. And it was in this context, Welby confessed, sometimes I doubt, I pray and I doubt if God exists. C.S. Lewis, um, I think many of you guys probably read his writings too. He also lost his wife to cancer. He similarly expressed in a letter to a friend on Christmas Eve of all times, he wrote, often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so intellectually, but often I feel so, experience. And when I, I think our experience does not seem to harmonize with the expect, our expectations and what we think about God, we can start to doubt, can bring forth doubt. 
in our lives, God is not who we thought he would be. And doubt is not uncommon. The Bible, my friends, is filled with doubters. We see Apostle Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection. You know, actually, Doubting Thomas is kind of a horrible nickname. The other disciples also doubted. John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was Messiah. We see in Matthew 11. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, doubted God's ability to make his wife pregnant. The Apostle Peter doubted while walking on the water in Matthew 14. And so if it's common and if it's hard, how should we, how should we as Christians think about doubt? And I kind of want to examine just at least three different aspects. I want to examine the world's view of doubt. Uh, I, don't know, I didn't really know how to title the other one, but the kind of opposite church view of doubt. And what does the Bible talk about doubt? And so what's the world's view of doubt? Oh, what's, what does the world view about doubt? And so actually, you know, I think it kind of goes two ways, but it also happens, just so happens, I think, in um, that we live actually in a time and a place in history, in an era of history, where doubt is actually valued. The doubt is embraced. Um, Rene Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, said that if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life, as far as possible, uh, to doubt all things. Uh, and I think we kind of understand what he means here, but um, the founder of Buddhism also kind of adds on this. He says, doubt everything. Find your own light. Uh, and though an ancient quote, I think it, it really strikes the same chord as what we hear even currently in postmodern relativism, right? It tells us that everything is both true and false. And so find your own light. Doubt everything. Don't believe what anybody tells you. And so doubt is actually, you know, sometimes when you're a doubter, you might actually find a lot of comfort in the world, even if it's not true. Uh, in, in the world's view, instead, if you actually hold to any established faith strongly, uh, you are frequently labeled closed-minded, right? Or simple, or backward, or uneducated. How can you believe those ancient myths, they say? And so you are labeled with the bigots, the closed-minded, right? So essentially, if I hold to Christian faith, an established Christian faith, I am now the Asian George W. Bush, right? I mean, right, guys, right? And I finally, I think one person I read said it this way. He said, the modern skeptic confuses doubt and denial for a kind of knowledge. And so what is the, um, you know, the opposite view? I think um, the opposite view of this is actually kind of, is probably true in larger Christian culture. And I'm not, I'm not saying that this is our church or um, a church that you know, uh, but Philip Yancey described what many Christians have experienced in their own churches in regards to doubt. He says, um, as, a child, I, uh, I, as a child, I attended a church that had little room for inquisitiveness. If you doubted or questioned, you sinned. Uh, and so I learned... I learned to conform, as you must in a church like that. And he said, meanwhile, those deep doubts, those deep questions I had didn't really get answered in a satisfactory way. He said, the danger by, just, by the church just saying, don't doubt, just believe, is that you don't really resolve the doubts. Uh, they just tend to resurface later in a more toxic form. And so actually, I think that's how often, you know, I deal with doubt or how we may deal with doubt. We think, 
Well, what is the opposite of doubt? Well, it's believe, right? So just believe and you'll be fine. Uh, and what I think that can start becoming in our own minds is then, then, okay, how do I believe? Stop thinking, stop asking these questions, stop questioning, just believe. And we, we start treating doubt like adultery or the war on drugs. We just say, just say no to doubt. Um, and though I think, you know, well-meaning and well-intentioned, this, this approach, the approach only cuts at the surface of doubt. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I recently bought a place, and um, we bought a place, and so uh, this is actually the first time Susan and I have a, a lawn, right, a front yard. It, it has a, the green stuff that grows out from it. I'm from L.A., so we don't actually see anything green, just gray and smog. But, uh, well, we bought a house, and uh, we had... Uh, what it turns out was when we first bought the place, it looked really nice. But then after we moved in two months later, there was a lush green forest in our front lawn. Uh, and uh, I think, I was telling Susan, I was joking with some of the guys, I think we could have actually held a paintball jungle course there. <laughs> it was almost this high. And so I thought, you know, I, gotta, I have to really get, I have to figure out a way to get rid of these things. And so, you know, I went to Ryan's and I said, no, do you have one of those things that, you know, I don't know, the spinning grass-killing things or weed-killing things? And do you have a, would you just happen to have a machete? <laughs> this is a chubby. He's like, okay, yeah, maybe. And so, you know, the next, the next night, uh, there I was uh, chopping and hacking at the grass and the weeds, right, so I could, just so I could uh, no longer see them in our front yard. Uh, but I think you all know, right, I, I only cut at the surface. I mean, you, we've all heard this analogy, but the simple idea is just like the weeds in our life, we can't just hack at doubt at the top. We can't just, we can't just avoid doubt. There is no just internet block for doubt. We can't just deal with it in a surface way. And to effectively deal with doubt in the church, we must get at them seriously and deeply. Uh, Okay, and secondly, I think, um, how, what is the other view of doubt in the church? I think often as a church, we may also have an overly simplified view of faith and doubt. Um, and I actually think we can find this often in the children's Bible, right? We see, uh, we read the stories, and it says, they go like, Moses followed God immediately. Moses was good. And then we read, Moses doubted. Moses was bad. Moses was happy. Moses was good. Moses was sad and worried. Moses was bad, right? And so we, the, the Bible starts having a, I mean, sometimes we paint the scriptures and the characters of scriptures like caricatures. They're either good or bad. They have faith or they don't have faith. They either immediately obey, Oakley, Oakley, I'm Ned Flanders, right? Or they're doubting sinners. Oh no, I worry. And so we have this picture, and I think. We suddenly, with this kind of simple view of faith, we inadvertently alienate those who come to Jesus and honestly ask a question or say, I believe Jesus, but help my unbelief. In this kind of world where there's only two kinds of Christians, where does this person fit in? Where do they go? Go home or pretend to be one of the two? One pastor I read insightfully noted, 
You know, this easy sort of faith actually betrays the biblical story. The most cursory glance at Genesis or Kings or any other Old Testament book of the Bible will not just yield a few tantrums, but a lot of panicking and a metric ton of confusion. Rarely do we see the kind of bland spirituality in the Bible, which meets every challenge with an effortless, as you wish, Lord, your will be done. Does that sound like Moses to you? Does that sound like David? Does that sound like Jeremiah? And so how does the Bible address the topic of doubt? And I, I think when I come to the, you know, I wanted a neat answer, but I, uh, this is a nice little proposition here, but what I could come up with the biblical view, I think, is not as soft on doubt as you think and is not as hard on doubt as you would think. Okay, how does that go? Uh, well, I think the Bible is clearly not soft on doubt, okay? Um, if you want to turn there, uh, you can also turn to Hebrews 11.6. You know, it's very clear and it's emphatic here, right? The Bible is not soft on doubt. It says, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He must believe that God exists. And I'd like to note, though, that it does not say it's impossible to please God with any doubt in your life. It says it's impossible to please God without faith, right? Without even a mustard seed of faith. Furthermore, though, I think, uh, how is the Bible not soft on doubt? I think actually often, you know, when you read the Gospels, you, you find Jesus often rebuking, at least lightly rebuking the disciples. Uh, Matthew 14, 31, he says, immediately, uh, says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of Peter while he was walking across the water and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 8, 26, Jesus said to the disciples, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The Bible is, I think, clearly not soft on doubt. Uh, in fact, I think in the book of James, uh, in my studies, I think uh, James actually, I think, is actually the least tactful of all the epistle writers. But he says in James 1, 6 to 8, he says, uh, in regards to prayer, but the Christian must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I, I kind of think that's not really soft, right? Uh, Jesus clearly does not say, Oh, poor doubters, come hither, you know, receive some hugs from me. He says, he does not, right? And then I think what James and Jesus are subtly instructing us here is, that we are actually, you know, though doubt is hard, we are not victims of doubt. Does that make sense? We are not victims of doubt. We are not at the mercy of every wave of doubt that comes. Uh, James, McDonald, uh, James McDonald said this. He said, like waves of the sea, doubts will come, but we need not let them undermine our faith. So doubt is, I think we can see in the scripture, is not a neutral thing or something that we're allowed to continue in or to wallow in or to even feel pity for ourselves in, though it'd be hard. Uh, but I also said, right, secondly, as I said, uh, the Bible is not as hard on doubt as you would think. Uh, Jude 22, I, I would go here. 
uh, it says, it instructs us, have mercy on those who doubt. He says, have mercy. Jude calls us to have compassion, to help those who doubt. And I think compassion, I think, is not here, you know, here, let me take the NASB from you. It looks kind of heavy. Uh, here's a better book for you, seeker doubter. Here's a children's Bible, you know. <laughs> this fits you better. That's not the kind of mercy that he's talking about. He says compassion, not belittling. And we see that this, I think, even in Jesus' responses to disciples, how do we, you know, how, do, how does Jesus respond to doubt? We saw that when Peter doubted and started to sink in the waves of the sea, Jesus took hold of him. When the disciples doubted in the midst of the storm and they were frightened and they were doubting, Jesus rebuked the storm, the waves. After Jesus' resurrection, it says the disciples were scared and hiding in a room. They were afraid of what was going on and they doubted. Luke 20 recounts the scene and Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. See that it is myself. Touch me and see. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus, we see, sought to encourage their faith with what? With himself. God recognized, Jesus recognized that the only solution to doubt is himself. Because he knows our lives. He knows our struggles. He knows, he, and he wants the Christian to care enough about your relationship with him to bring him your doubts. You know, often when Susan and I get into little conflicts, she'll ask me, you know, Ben, is anything wrong? And I'll say, no, no, you know? And in my pride, I wallow and I, and I hide. She says, I can see something's wrong. Tell me. And I say, nothing's wrong. You know, I can deal with it myself. But I think just like that, just like in this situation, God wants us to care enough about our relationship with him to bring him our doubts. Not by hacking at doubt with a machete, not by not thinking about it, not by running away from doubt, but by engaging God with our hearts. And I think what comes from there is that we see that there is a kind of strong faith that emerges from doubt, a faith that fights for understanding, a kind of mature faith that doesn't fit our neat, pretty little box of Christianity. And just on the last note on this, I think even in our, you know, I think we notice that it's kind of interesting, right? Sometimes, you know, in, Christian, in Christianity we say, you know, salvation is by grace, right, through faith. And we think, um, you know, salvation is obviously not by works. But what can we bring to God? Sometimes we think it's our faith, right? We think we, have to, we can bring, at least we can believe in God, and that's our, our work. But here we see that even, it's even our faith, even our faith we must bring to Jesus. Even the desire and the will to believe must be given to Jesus. And only Jesus will give it to us. Um, and I confess, you know, often at times in my life, I've struggled with doubt. I've laid in my bed at night and asked God, God, if you're real, show yourself to me, please, Lord. 
I think one, night, one dark night of my soul, I said to God, if you can, at least shoot a lightning bolt. Hit, hit that little post over there. Show me you're real. Please, God, anything. I mean, you know, make Brian get up right now, God. Okay, even lesser miracle. You know, let him get up now here and start dancing or something. And then I will take that as a sign from you, God. But what God says is bring this to me. Bring your worries. Bring your pains. Bring your doubts. Engage me and I will answer you and I will show you my hands and my feet. So friends, how do we think about doubt? 2 Timothy 1.13, I think, says it well. In his little song, this little hymn, if we are faithless, it is he who remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, so lastly, I, uh, I, I did want to just go through a few practical points, and I'm sorry, uh, this is how do we address doubt? So how do we, so how do we practically address doubt in our lives? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to apologize a little bit here because I think they're all kind of like little mini sermons. I was originally preparing this for equipping hours, so I, I thought that would fly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, how do we address doubt? And I had, I had a few thoughts, and I'll see if I go through all of them, but um, they go like this. Focus, focus on what you know. When you struggle with doubt, focus on what you know. Doubt your doubts. Uh, situate yourself in the story and trust Jesus. And I'm sorry, each of these could actually be a little sermon, but uh, okay, here it goes. Uh, so first one is focus on, you know, in doubt, focus on what you know. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we recount, uh, uh, Matthew recounts a time when John the Baptist was in, actually in, pri- in prison, languishing, right? He was sent there by Herod and his daughter Herodias, and he sends a letter to Jesus. And, it, you know, the letter doesn't go something like, hey, I'm staying strong here. I'm doing good. You know, he actually sends a question. And he says in Matthew 11, 4, or 3, John asked, the question, John, uh, John asked Jesus the question, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? I mean, that's an interesting question, right, for someone who knew Jesus. G- John doubted. Uh, Jesus, though, doesn't, you know, it's interesting how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't actually send John something spectacular back. You know, I, th- I would think, you know, if I was going to write the gospel, I would think John, Jesus would send back John something spectacular, right? Like a dead squirrel, and the squirrel would go, bah, rah, you know, and he'd be like, oh, okay, okay, you know, Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. You are the Messiah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but actually what we see is Jesus enters in a kind of unspectacular way, especially for Jesus who makes lots of miracles happen. Uh, instead, in verse 4, we see Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. These are all things John already knew. Jesus reminds John of what he already knows. And I think in the periods of doubting and struggle, you know, it's, for most of us, very often, it isn't that God has never met your expectations, right? It's, never, it's not that you spent your entire life doubting. It's not that God, you, you, you've never had confidence or assurance in God. And so you think, what was it that brought you there? What gave you confidence? Maybe in the, you know, and I think it's rather actually in, only in a specific circumstance, in a specific context, or a specific argument that you struggle to understand, and so you doubt in that situation. And so Jesus just says, you know, basically, he calls John, rather than to focus on himself in prison, 
rather than to focus on what he did not, to the one expectation that was not met, he says focus, he calls them to remember what he already has confidence in. John, remember. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, John. Am I not who I say I am? Uh, secondly, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Uh, you know, and I think, uh, actually, when you struggle with intellectual doubts, I, most, uh, I think uh, I would and most, uh, uh, most pastors who deal with doubts would, would encourage you to, uh, you know, if, if it's possible to satisfy your intellectual doubt, study it, research it, like the Bereans, you know, study it and find confidence uh, in Christianity. And I think there are deep answers to very deep questions. And we, not, we need not be afraid to ask them and seek the answer. But I also think it's helpful for the doubter uh, to recognize at the pursuit, at the end of the pursuit for certainty in life, for confidence in life, life will always require faith. Okay? Uh, and I, I think I, I kind of picture it this way, right? Sometimes the person who doubts, you know, let's say he doubts a claim, right? A cl- claim A. And he thinks, I'm, he's, evaluating, he, he's evaluating claim A. He thinks that he's evaluating it from a solid 100% certain ground, right? He's saying, you know, I am in a completely neutral position here, and I'm evaluating claim A. But really what we're saying is when he's evaluating claim A or stepping away from claim A, he's really actually stepping back onto a claim B, right? A claim B, which is also a faith and also a claim something that is not 100% certain. So if he says, you know, I really am not sure if God exists, then he's really falling, the claim A, he's really stepping back onto a claim B that God, he is saying that God doesn't exist, right? So how do you prove that? Is that certain? Will you be 100% certain in your life? You just stepped away from that, that this would be true. Or let's say he says, you know, Jesus wasn't really God. He says, I really kind of doubt Jesus is really God. So he steps back, and what he's stepping back on is not 100% neutral ground. He's stepping back onto the claim that says, well, Jesus is either a lunatic or a liar or some deranged person or really never really happened, right? He's stepping onto that. And would he say, would I 100% agree with this? Is this what I want to step back to? And he would see, I mean, if you see it, and I think a lot of theologians say this, life is actually a series of beliefs, Right? Presuppositional apologetics have already teased out this faith, this fact, right? Faith, there is, there, in life there is always a faith and there is always a belief. And I think sometimes it is helpful uh, for the doubter to recognize this. Sometimes the doubter, what the doubter wants is 100% certainty in life. God just let me be 100% sure, at least 99.9999% sure, please. But brother or sister, if you, you struggle with doubt, let me tell you, even your doubts are a faith. Uh, and so I think C.S. Lewis uh, even encouraged the doubter in this way. He said, you ought to submit your doubts to the same scrutiny as you submit, as the faith that you doubt. And then from that point, ask yourself, which faith is better? I'm not sure how I'm on time. Let me uh, jump to the end, actually. Um, the last, uh, so situate yourself in the story, and then um, I'm going to skip that just for now. Uh, but trust, 
uh, trust in Jesus, trust in him. Uh, to conclude, I, I, I did hear an encouraging story by Pastor, uh, Pastor Tim Keller uh, regarding faith uh, in regards to the parting of the Red Sea. Um, and you know, I don't, think you, I don't think you normally think about the Red Sea as a, a story about necessarily faith, right? But um, maybe of deliverance. But we know the Israelites crossed the sea uh, by faith, right? Hebrews eleven twenty nine said, by faith, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. Uh, and what Keller pointed out was that, you know, during the crossing of the Red Sea, when the Israelites went across, I'm actually, he said, I, I'm, I'm sure they were, you know, not all the Israelites crossed the sea with the same kind of faith, okay? Uh, he said, uh, you know, we, we read that there was, you know, in the crossing, there was a wall of water to the right, and on the left, there was another wall of water. And I'm, he said, I'm certain that, you know, some of the guys, you know, walked across the Red Sea in faith and said, wow, wow, hi, Nemo, hi, Flipper, you know, and they walked around walking leisurely across the Red Sea. They had faith. Eat your heart out, Egyptians. Look at us. Our God is greater, you know. But he said there's also pro- there probably was also another kind of person who walked across, and they probably were a little bit more like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, right? I, I, okay, Jesus, you know, you better get me out of this. But they made it through, right? <clears throat> both, had, both of these people had faith to cross. Some had strong faith. Some had weak faith. Some strolled across leisurely. Some sprinted for their dear lives. But both were saved the same. Both were saved the same. Why? Because it wasn't their faith that saved them. It wasn't the, the, the type, their, their, the measure of faith that saved them. It wasn't their faith that held the waters up. It wasn't their faith that crushed the Egyptians with the water. It was God. It was the object of their faith. So sister or brother, if today you struggle with doubt and you are fighting for, doubt, uh, for faith, I would like to encourage you with a simple truth. It is not your faith that saves you. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who will bring you home from Egypt. It was Jesus who takes you through the sea. It is Jesus who will bring you home. If you need any more confidence than that, look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we say salvation is by grace through faith, even a mustard, the tiniest mustard seed will get you home. Let's trust Jesus and let us pray. Lord, Father God, how interesting it is that even our prayers, even to look to you and to trust you is a gift from you. Father, we confess that so often we are confused or afraid or we wallow in our doubts. But you know, we know, Father, when we are faithless, you are faithful. And so we bring to you these things uh, for the brothers and sisters or even unbelievers who sit in this congregation who do not know you, Lord. I pray that your word will speak clarity when there's clouds of doubt. And God, that you would give hope and that you would strengthen our faith. And all, even just like that, Father, 
uh, who struggle with doubt, we say, Lord God, in the end, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so, Father, we do pray that you, as you have overcome the world, that you will overcome our doubts. And we trust this in you, your name. In Jesus' name we pray.